And today, I really kind of want to take a, a slow, thoughtful uh, look into this teaching of Jesus about prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. As we've said in weeks past, the most dense section of red letters in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount, being the words of Christ. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, Jesus teaches on a variety of very practical things and, uh, and gives us some insights into what God really meant when he gave the law and what God expects and desires for, of, of us as his children and as followers of Jesus. So a lot of it is very hard words, as we have seen, challenging words. I, I've definitely felt from week to week very challenged by what I'm preaching, um, almost to the point of feeling like I'm quaking in my boots preaching this stuff, because it's, it's just very challenging. And it's God's word to us. And God is focused like a laser beam on every body of Christ that's gathering on a Sunday morning. And he's desiring that everybody be following Jesus and be coming together as a body in unity to follow Jesus and do his ministry. So this is perhaps uh, more important when you think about that big picture, that God is focused on working in this particular way in the body to bring about Jesus Christ's body in its fullness. So today we are looking at prayer. Talk about a topic that people think about a lot. If Christians think about uh, how they wish they prayed more, people think to themselves uh, guilty feelings about not praying enough. People say, why should I pray? It doesn't make a difference. Uh, people often feel like failures in this area of prayer. We're not going to cover every aspect of prayer, but we're going to look at just what it says here, and I think it's going to be encouraging to us. I think there's going to be a rather um, unorthodox, countercultural practice we can pull from today's scripture that we can bring with us into our weeks ahead. So last week we talked about living life before God alone, and, and I said there's three different aspects of this, three different parts to it. The first is in our giving, giving to the needy. The scriptures say, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't be like a hypocrite who announces to everybody that you're charitable giving, but do it before, you're, before God who is not seen. And then when God sees you do that act of righteousness, he will reward you. So the, the whole idea is we, we're supposed to live before God. And especially, Jesus says, watch out when you do acts of righteousness. Watch out when you do churchy, Christian-y things, because those are the times when you're going to be tempted to perhaps put on a mask and, and start play, being an actor in, in a play about your life. But really, God wants you to be living authentically and giving authentically for him alone, not for other people to witness. Uh, in Jesus' day, there was a lot of spiritual uh, play acting going on with, with Pharisees and people that Jesus very harshly labeled as hypocrites. And Jesus is saying, wants us to avoid hypocrisy. He wants us to be authentically ourselves. I, I talked last week about, you know, in these areas of giving, of prayer and fasting, you know, Jesus is, is advising us to avoid putting on a show for other people, but doing it unto God alone. In our day, it's not really in vogue to be fasting, praying, and those kinds of things in front of other people. In fact, Sometimes we'd rather not have those labels or not, have not draw attention to ourselves as Christ followers. I think Jesus' word to us would cut the other way in our day many times that he might say, maybe you should let people know that you're a believer. Maybe you should let people know that you pray. Maybe you should, you know, in some ways, 
the, the, the humble thing to do and the, thing, the way you do it before God is to embrace, uh, embrace your faith and to let people know that you are a person of faith, a Christ follower, because there's not a lot of that going around in the world today. So it's really a heart issue. It's an intention issue. But Jesus says, those who deny me before other people, I will deny before my Father in heaven. There's something about how we are supposed to acknowledge that we are followers of Jesus and, and acknowledge the things that we do, which these days are rather unpopular, countercultural, countercultural, a prayer being one of those things. So today we, we're looking at prayer, and we're going to hear Jesus uh, from Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord for us today. So first of all, we can go back to, to Matthew 6, 1, where it says, be careful. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And when you pray, be careful not to practice this in front of other people to be seen by other people. Prayer time, much like giving to the poor uh, in the time of Jesus was a tempting time for people to try to show off to other people. And of course, these, still, these things still happen even among the church uh, where, where people are praying for the sake of other people listening. But prayer was an especially easy area for people to target if they wanted to put on a show of it because people in Jesus' day prayed at set times during the day. They prayed in the morning. They prayed in the afternoon. They prayed in the evening. So if you were wanting to show people how holy you were, you just had to keep an eye on your watch or your sundial and be somewhere where there were people praying, and then you could do it in front of them. You could pray in the synagogue. You could pray on a street corner. When Jackie and I were in, uh, in Bosnia, uh, one of the few times we've been there with our, with our uh, missionaries and the work that's there, uh, we, we saw a people who in the Muslim population who's called this kind of tradition, the same tradition as the early Jewish people who will, who will drop whatever they're doing and they will fall to their knees and they will worship God, worship Allah at these, these three times. And it's very clear this is what people did. So Jesus is saying, because this was the tradition of the Jews in his day, he's saying, you know, this is, you need to be careful in this area of prayer because um, it's so easy to know where the people are and then to kind of, put on a show for people in this area of prayer. And if you do this, 
he says, then you've already received your reward. Your reward is other people thinking you're a cool spiritual person. But there is no reward from God in that. Jesus says, as opposed to seeking the most public place to pray, you seek the most private place to pray. And your Father who sees what you're doing for him will reward you. There are many people in the Old and New Testament who were lauded for their prayer life and for really finding a, a secret place to meet with God. And they got, they got to be on the inside edge of whatever God was doing in that era. I think about, uh, I think it was Hannah and Samuel, you know, someone who was praying to God and seeking after him. She got to be a part of bringing up a, a king, a prophet, before God. There's people that made this practice, the secret prayer, prayer practice, a big part of their lives, and they were rewarded for it. I will tell you that I really, I really feel like the times in my life that I look back on as being particularly blessed are the times when I've had a regular time with God, just being in his presence, praying, that is not, um, that is not something be, that, that is lauded by the world. Like extracurricular, not, not at church, you know, not, in, not before and after meals, but in a private place with God. And there's a huge reward in that. This is the time when God builds into us the things that he needs to build into us for the, for the road that's ahead of us that we don't know is there in this private time with God. And um, there's, no, there's nothing, it makes sense that Jesus says to watch out in this area of prayer because if you pray for other people's benefit, um, to be seen by them, and you miss out on the secret closet kind of prayer that Jesus talks about, the private prayer of meeting with the Lord, um, there is a huge reward that God wants to give to people that do that. It doesn't say what the reward is, but I think anyone who has made that regular practice in their life, who's been careful to make prayer uh, a private prayer time, not publicized to the world, but just between you and God. It's a way, just like with giving, where you are saying to God, first and foremost, I am here for you. I'm here for you. I'm not here to, you know, pray with a worship team or, or to lead a prayer in church. I'm talking about myself now as, as, a, as a pastor. Because guess what? Pastors, many times, they will say, You'd think pastors are such great prayer warriors, but no, that's not the case. They're just like anybody else. They're just like anybody else. They struggle with prayer just like everyone else is. There's no one who's really great at prayer. Like we need, but we all need to, to find that private place. And we need to go before God at times that are not just the normal times. And we need to seek his face. And we're saying to God, I'm here for you. We're also saying to our, our own soul, like the Bible says in Psalms, awake my soul, you know, oh my soul, cry out to God. You're saying to your own soul, I am here for God. So between you telling God you're here for him and you telling yourself you're here from him, it builds up your identity in Christ in a very substantial way. You have this secret time where you're connected to your, to your creator and there's a reward in that. It's a huge reward. So Jesus says, watch out. Don't do it for any other reason but to draw near to God and seek after his face. If you do it for God alone, you find a way to do that in your life. There will be a reward for you. And I think we'd say many things can be accomplished without praying. Many churches make plans without praying. Many pastors preach sermons without praying. 
Um, there's, many, there's many good, awesome sermons, teachings, books by people who don't have a secret prayer life with God. But the people that do, there's a depth, there's an uncommon depth in them because God, they're saying to God, I'm here for you. They're saying to themselves, I'm here for God. And between those two things, they're built up and they receive something in a way that uh, they wouldn't have otherwise. So prayer is important. Jesus says when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray. When you pray. Don't put on a show for anyone. Don't put on a show for yourself. Like you're praying and, and you, you're kind of subtly performing for yourself in a way sometimes. Only for God. If people are seeking the most public place to pray, you are to seek the most private place to pray. That's what God, Jesus says. And there's such a reward in that. This is not a guilt thing. This is not an a, a unduly heavy burden that Jesus is trying to put on us. Um, there, there's such a warm reward in prayer, a warm, relational, centering, steadfast reward because you're, you're connecting to God himself, you know, in prayer. And because of the grace of God, you can, you can, you can go into prayer boldly every time even if you are a real screw-up, like some of us, like some of us pastors and some of us people in the church. And there is no one, Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. How much more myself? There's no one who's good at this but God, God alone. So let's, let's go for it. Find the most private place to pray. Your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Verse 5 and when you pray, do not be like hypocrites. For they love to stand praying in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you, they've received their reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. That just means like people that don't have a relationship with God. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Kind of a, a harsh-sounding language there, but he's saying don't babble like people that don't know God, the one true God. We're definitely also in danger of, of being like people that don't know God when we pray. When we pray without knowledge of who God is at all in our, in our minds so we're not centered around the knowledge of who God is. When we are, when we pray without any trust or any belief that God is good or he's faithful or he's a father, we can be, we can become very um, babbly in our prayers. And the idea is people that don't know God, you know, who Jesus is addressing here, he says people babble because they don't really know to whom exactly they're praying to. They're full of anxiety. They're hoping that someone in the pantheon of, of gods hears their prayer. They're trying to entice whoever they're praying to to hear their prayer. They're trying to almost manipulate the fates, if you will, through praying, through piling all kinds of ideas together. And at the same time, there's an anxiety of not wanting to offend any of, the, any of the gods that might be out there. So people that don't know God uh, pray like that. They kind of go, go on and on uh, if they pray. 
not really knowing who they're praying to, not with any trust. And against this idea of prayer, Jesus presents this model of prayer where we pray to a God who knows what we need before we ask him. It says in verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is a God we're praying to who, who, we, who we have to take by faith in the word of God. He loves us. If you're a Christian, God loves you. And it doesn't matter how you're performing as a Christian. God loves you. And if we, if we pray without a knowledge that God loves us, we're going to babble. We're going to recite Bible verses to God to remind him how much he's supposed to love us. You know, like, remember in your word, God, when you said this? Please don't kill me. You know, that kind of thing. Um, there's, there's a certain fear that you can approach God with if you are praying without understanding. You begin to babble all kinds of stuff to God. Uh, this, is, this is where Jesus is teaching in Luke. He says, which of you, if his father asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If his father, uh, if he asks for water, will give him a scorpion? If even earthly fathers can give good gifts to their children, how much more your father in heaven? Think better about the one you're praying to, in other words. If you're, you know, God so loved the world. He gave his only son. God so loves Christians. They're saved through Jesus. He loves. He loves. He knows our needs before we ask him. He loves us. And he can be trusted because as we said this morning, the work that he began, he will bring to completion. So this is kind of the fuel of our prayer time, right? He can be trusted. I think it's interesting, as an aside, it says, do not be like people that don't know God. For, your God. for Father knows what you need before you ask him. I had never thought about it until I was studying this passage this week. It doesn't say that God knows what we're going to pray to him, even though he very well might. It says he knows what our needs are. So a lot of times people think, you know, why pray? You know, God already knows everything. He knows what I'm going to ask him. You might, you know, in some kind of weird, the, weird theological loophole, you might surprise him. <laughs> he knows what you need. Go before his throne of grace with confidence and speak it to him. It's not this fatalistic interchange. There's a, there's a mystery to prayer uh, that we don't fully understand of God working in response and with human interaction in prayer. He knows what we need, but we choose what words we say to him. We choose how to align with, with him in that. So if we don't believe these foundational truths about who God is towards us, as Christians, we are going to babble like people that don't know God. If we don't believe that God loves us. If we don't believe we can come before his throne of grace with confidence because Jesus was enough. If we don't believe that God knows what we need or wants to give anything to us. If we have this very negative view, we're going to babble and babble and babble. And lots of times we're going to recite Bible verses to ourselves to try to convince ourselves uh, of something that we don't really believe. And I think the word of God there's a way of praying the Word of God to build up your faith that the minute that you pray the Word of God to try to remind God of something, He already knows it, you know? And he, He's faithful. So when we pray from the wrong foundation, we feel anxiety at prayer time to say the right words, to mention the right promises of God back to Him, to pretty up our language in God's presence to make it sound a certain way to the point that even when we're, when we're by ourselves in a room by ourselves, we can become play actors in our own praying. We can actually, and that's a really, 
That's, that's deep, right? You can, you can actually become disingenuous with yourself. And so Jesus is cha- challenges us to lay a foundation when we pray uh, through, this, through this admonition. God knows what you need before you ask him. There's, a, there's love in that. God, God has loved and been faithful to his people for all time. Look how God takes care of Israel in the, in the Old Testament. He's faithful. I read this passage this past week from Isaiah 65, 24. It says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. That warmed my heart. That warmed my heart. That's God's promise to his people. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. This is the eagerness of the Father to hear our prayers, respond to our prayers. And this is the same um, faithfulness that God had to his people in Israel it's the same faithfulness is on his church today. Every believer, every follower of God, that same faithfulness, that same covenant promise through Jesus is on us. Before we call, he will answer. While we are still speaking, he will hear. He's not like a hardened, angry father. He, is, he loves us. He's faithful. Just as he's always shown himself to be in the Old New Testament to both his children, Israel, and to his adopted family and the church who were grafted into his people through Jesus Christ. He's faithful. We do not need to be anything special when we come to God in prayer. We can simply, we can simply believe God loves me. He knows what I need before I ask him. He's faithful. There's nothing in my life, no darkness, no sin, that can separate me. Not even death can separate me. Angels and demons cannot separate me. Nothing in all of creation can separate me. That's the God you're praying to when you come to prayer. Jesus is so focused on the heart's intent here and the heart in prayer. We are not to try to impress other people or even impress ourselves or impress God. Just come to him. I think a good practice when you come to Jesus is to, in, in prayer, is to take a deep breath and just take a moment to remember the truth of who you're praying to and then launch into the prayer. It's going to change the way you pray to think, okay, about to go in prayer. God is faithful. God's grace is enough. The issue of my identity and value was settled at the cross when Jesus came and died for me because of his love for me. That God, God knows what I need already. And if I ask him for something, he's not going to punish me for asking the wrong question. He's a good father. He gives good gifts to his children. Father, ellipses. That's a good place to pray from. Not babbling like, like somebody who doesn't know God, but centered in the knowledge of who God is. That God loves to give good gifts. Oftentimes, God is already doing the most loving thing possible in your life if you had eyes to see it. He knows what we need. And he wants to work through our prayers. So Jesus knows God as Father. And that belief leads Jesus to teach his followers, us, to approach God in confidence. Just like Jesus does and in his name. So those are the two, the two precursors to the Lord's Prayer. And if you are from a different tradition, perhaps Catholicism or another tradition where they repeat the Lord's Prayer, you heard this and you're like, wow, right away your, your brain's like trespasses, sins. Which word do I use? You know? because it's so memorized. Everyone knows this. Everyone knows the Lord's Prayer. People that don't believe in Jesus know the Lord's Prayer. They, everyone knows it. So um, 
I'm not going to be bringing out anything new <laughs> because this has been talked about and preached on forever. So I'd like to look at uh, just what it says and dive into this prayer. In the Gospel of Luke, in, in, our, in, our, in our scripture today, Jesus mixes, and it's rather out of place if you notice, he mixes the Lord's Prayer and the teaching in the midst of some other teachings he does. But in Luke 11, the disciples actually ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. They say, I believe they say, um, teach us to pray the way that John taught his disciples to pray, John the Baptist. Um, many people that were following Jesus who asked this question may have been John the Baptist's followers, or they may have followed some other rabbi. But Jesus is not doing anything radical or new by sharing a, a preset prayer with the people who ask him for help with their prayer lives. This is a typical thing that rabbis did. And Jesus being the good teacher, the rabbi, he gave them this prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. And this, this Lord's Prayer is, is a beautiful prayer in itself. It's also a beautiful template to think through as you pray, to guide your praying. But this prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples, you know what they would have done with this prayer? They would have recited it three times a day. That's probably what they would have done with it. Morning, afternoon, and night. That's what Jewish people did. So it wasn't just a template, as some people would lead you to believe in our modern day, of like pray along these lines. But many times it would, it would simply be prayed as it's written three times a day. And this is, a, this is actually a teaching mechanism that's very effective because you're basically being taught how to pray every time you say it, every time you share it. It's, it feels very formal to some of us, even unspiritual, to repeat a prayer as it's written. But the only reason it feels that way to us is because it's not in vogue to read pre-written prayers these days. Some... It's been pointed out in the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, the Orthodox Church, reciting prayers was completely normative for every church up until the 20th century. And in the 20th century, it became, it's much more spiritual to be spontaneous all the time. And so people moved away from just reading the prayer as written, and spontaneity became king in the 20th century. I think now we're turning a corner and saying, like, maybe we need a little bit more mooring to in our prayer life you know spontaneity is great it's wonderful i mean i i love to pray spontaneously when i'm leading worship or when i'm just alone with god or whatever but um there's a place for simply reading a prayer and the church has always read this prayer three times a day um in, in traditional cultures and now up in, uh, in every church up until the 20th century so i think some of the challenge for us is to take Jesus at his word and say, when his disciples said, teach us how to pray, we should start thinking, perhaps as part of our prayer life, we should consider praying this prayer every day, ourselves. Praying this very prayer, word for word, to God every day as a part of our prayer life. So in verse 9, Jesus begins this prayer. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. When Jesus says, Our Father, he is focusing on his own intimate, familial, 
son relationship with his father God. And in teaching us to pray this way, he is giving us uh, an on-ramp to the same kind of relationship that he shared with God. He's saying, when you pray, you should say, you should also say, our Father, just like I do. Our uh, be, being a child of God is, uh, is wrapped up in Jesus being God's Son. And, our, and we are invited to be in this, this very intimate relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by, this simple, by him simply saying, when you pray, pray our, our Father. Our Father. Also, it's, it's plural. I mean, this is a prayer that's being prayed with other believers in the church in mind. So when you pray this prayer, you should be thinking about the other folks who share as daughters and sons of God as well. So you're, all of us together are invited into this intimate relationship that Jesus has with God that God has with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has with God, and that the Holy Spirit has with Jesus, the Trinity. We're invited into the Trinity to talk to God. It's awesome. And we do that not alone, but always with others in mind. In a very individualistic culture where it's all about, you know, we think about ourselves or, or at most sometimes our, our household and the people in our household and family, biological family, uh, but G- but uh, Jesus wants us to have a bigger vision of who we're praying with, and he wants us to include the family of God into that family ta- uh, role that we have in our minds. So Jesus says, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I often used to think to myself, you know, how... Well, how am I supposed to think about hallowed be your name? That's a very foreign kind of way of talking. And who is it addressing? Am I supposed to, I've often thought to myself when I'm praying, am I supposed to somehow hallow God when I pray? Like to say, you are holy and to ascribe to him his worth and his goodness? In this passage, in the original language, it's actually saying to God, hallow your own name. It's like addressing God to address God's self. Similar to, and I looked at this passage in Ezekiel 36, 22, it says, Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. So God is saying to his people, I'm not doing this for your sake, I'm actually doing this for the sake of my holy name. Um, So when we say, God, hallowed be your name, we're saying, whatever brings you the most glory, I'm on board with that. Hallowed be your name. You know, that's a really interesting thought. Before when I read that, I think, oh, what, that's kind of a pressure and anxiety. How do I hallow God's name? Oh, I'm not very holy. I'm not, you know, I've sinned against God. And, you know, he's, I'm not hallowing him enough. No, you're saying, whatever brings you the most glory, that's what I'm on board with. I love you. I want your glory to be over all the earth. Hallow your name. Honor your name. This is what, what, what the word hallow means. Set apart your name. Treat your name with highest respect. May your name be lifted up and respected and known by all people. I love you, God. I want everyone to know you as well. Hallowed be your name. Um, in, in John, let me see, John. In John 12, 28, this is right after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as a king. 
It says, Now my soul is troubled, in verse 27. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's powerful. You know, Jesus knew that he was going to die on the cross to save the world. He wasn't asking God to take that away from him. He was saying, you know, as hard as this is going to be, God, hallowed be your name. This is your plan. Hallowed be your name. Let it be so. Jesus, for Jesus, it was God's glory that was first and foremost in his life. And uh, there is, like, you know, it says, For God so loved the world he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But there's also a sense where you can read, where you can look at the, the cross, just like Ezekiel uh, 36, where God is hallowing his own name by making justification for our sins through Christ. Like, the, the sins that we've committed that are, uh, that, that, put us in indebtedness, if you will, or have made us uh, so, so that we, we cannot be perfect, we cannot connect to God. God has hallowed his own name by dying himself for our sins so that we could be connected to God. So, yes, God died for the sins of the world because of his great love for the world. He also died for the sins of the world because he was upholding who he is and his character, his faithfulness true, through and through. Who knew that you could get this much out of like one word in the Lord's Prayer? But it's a good one. It's a really good prayer. Um, Hallowed be your name. The question is, what do we want to be lifted up the most in our lives, in our churches, in our families, in our world? Is it God's name, no matter what, or some, something else? Right? Prayer begins with God. Verse 10, and now I'm in the wrong passage. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the same, this is that, that same idea that of, of hallowing God's name, that his kingdom, which is defined as where God's rule and reign is being exercised fully, where there's a just and equitable society, where people are treating each other well, uh, where people are following God's law and honoring God above all things, and there's no more sickness, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. This is Revelation 21 and 22. At the end of things, the kingdom of God is what Jesus is telling us to pray for. For, the, for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just as in God's realm, all things are as they should be, this prayer is praying that heaven would come down on earth, that God's rule and reign would be exerted on our lives, on our church, on the life of our family, and on the life of people that we know who may not even know God yet. Let your kingdom come. The kingdom of God, has been, it's been pointed out in pretty much, uh, this is a very, very common teaching. It's already here. Jesus said he brings a kingdom. John the Baptist said that Prepare, prepare a way for the Lord. Prepare a way for the kingdom of God to come. Uh, in Jesus' advent and coming into the world, the kingdom of God came onto the earth. Uh, and someday, the kingdom of God will be all in all. Someday, everything in world history will be summed up in Christ. God will balance the whole equation, and there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more injustice. Righteousness will roll. Uh, there will not be people telling each other 
who God is. Everyone will know who God is from the smallest to the greatest of us. You know, the kingdom of God is going to come in its fullness someday. In its fullness. But until the day when it's realized fully, we have this prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's both longing, pining for a time when there is justice. Every time someone dies that you know, it's, it hurts you because it's not the way it's supposed to be. We were made to live forever. You know, th- these are the kind of, these are the, the, the groaning that we have in the suffering of our lives, the injustice we've witnessed in our world, um, the, the, the sin, the death, all of that stuff. We're longing for a new and better kingdom to come. And in Revelation 21 and 22, there's this idea of the kingdom of God coming into the realm of the earth and the realm of the earth that we live in becoming aligned perfectly with God's kingdom. That's what we're praying for, both in the, in the, in the distant future, but hear me, also for the present age in which we live. This is why we can pray for people and ask that God would, would heal their bodies physically, and, and sometimes people are healed. This is why uh, people... Uh, well, where the, the, the kingdom of God in that, in that instance has come because in the kingdom of God, there's no more sickness and no more death, no more crying and no more pain. So you can pray for somebody. Let the kingdom come in this person's life. Let them be healed as they will be at the end of all things when they're made whole. Some of that healing flow into this person right now. And the kingdom of God can come in that situation. And because the kingdom isn't fully here yet, it's kind of questionable like what will happen as a result of our prayer but jesus encourages us he says pray that god's kingdom will come and his will will be done in your realm where you live as it is in heaven because the kingdom of god is at hand it's a mustard seed it's it's a little bit of yeast but eventually it's going to grow into a giant tree and it's going to be the whole thing is going to be god's kingdom you know it's a little bit of yeast but it's going to work through the batch of the entire world eventually until then pray that it comes and if you don't see it, all the more reason to pray. All the more reason to pray. Uh, because God's kingdom is many times very subtle and small, but it grows into a big, big thing. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And again, just as in hallowing God's name, it's saying, I want your kingdom to come. In the brokenness of my life, in my own sin areas, in my own brokenness in my relationships, I want your kingdom to come and your will to be done. Let me fall in line with what you want to do, God, in this situation. Let your kingdom come. And I've prayed so many times, and you've prayed perhaps, let your kingdom come in our church. Let, let there be healing. Let there be times of revival and awakening in our own body of Christ here. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. We ache for the kingdom to be here in its fullness, but now we just see in part. This next section, in verse 12, switches from asking God to do things, and it's kind of God-centric, to us asking God for things, which is, in this template, perfectly and completely acceptable in Jesus' mind. So, in verse 11, it says, Give us today our daily bread. Biblical scholars, for some reason, can't figure out what this means. And uh, like, there's a lot of people that had different ideas about it. I guess the words are very ambiguous in the Greek. But it seems really clear to me that this is talking about practical needs. It brings to mind the manna in the desert. There was a, when, when God's people were wandering in the desert, 
God sent manna, which, which means what is it, which was kind of like a weird honey bread thing. And it was there on the land, and they could gather it up and eat it. And if they left any longer than that day, it was spoiled and rotten and disgusting. And so the whole, the whole message to me when I read that story is, you know, that's, that's an event that really happened, but it teaches me something about God and his provision. And that's that there's a daily bread that God wants us to seek after. And sometimes the provision for today is not what we need for tomorrow. We just need it for today. And uh, our propensity is to pray into the future or pray into the past with anxiety towards the future and with shame about our past. And Jesus fo- fo- wants us to take our eyes off the future, off the past, and put it right in the present day. What do I need today from God? And if you want to learn about somebody who decided to put God to the test on this, read the autobiography of George Mueller. It's an amazing story. I've recommended it many times. Many of you have read it at the recommendation. Uh, it's, it's incredible to see what can happen when a saint decides, I'm going to just put God to the test and, and ask him for my daily bread, not just for me, but for all these orphans. And if they don't get it, they're going to starve. It's, it's an amazing story. Uh, so you should check that out. Um, but th- this is, this is uh, daily provisions, the normal needs that we have, ordinary needs for our everyday life. This is what God's encouraging us to ask for in this prayer. This is especially prevalent for, uh, especially needful for his, his audience. I mean, these were very, very poor people that were following Jesus originally for the most part. Um, for, for, the, for those of us that aren't living from meal to meal uh, in the same way that people were at this time, who, ha- who perhaps have more stable housing and those kinds of things, you know, we, we have to take a step back and figure out, um, are we missing out on asking for God's provision because we're so comfortable in the lives we live? Do we need to divest ourselves of some of our comforts in order to, um, to bless other people and then to rely on God for our daily bread? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves as people that are relatively wealthy in the context of the world, and certainly in the context of the people that were listening to Jesus originally. I'm going to read 6.12 and also 14 and 15 because uh, verse 13 is kind of a separate idea. So I'm going, to, I'm going to start at verse 12. It says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 14, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Is there any more to that, Jesus, or is that it? And you're all, we're all wondering, you know. Uh, this is a hard teaching. And it really hits us where it hurts. And if you want to think about this more, I preached on love for enemies a couple of weeks ago. And uh, this is the same kind of idea. You know, this forgiveness is, is very challenging for every person. Every person. But Jesus says, as challenging as it is, you are to forgive other people. This is what you are supposed to do. It doesn't mean that you, as some have pointed out, that you need to automatically trust the person you forgive. Some people are not trustworthy, and, some people, and people need to earn the trust you give to them. But forgiveness is not about trust. It's about forgiving them and letting go of what they did. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. It says... For if you give other pe- forgive other people their sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So there's this idea, 
God's forgiven us, forgiven us of stuff, of great amount of stuff, a great debt to him. No matter who we are, how good we've been, the debt between us and God was too great for us to make it right. We didn't have enough money to pay ourselves out of debt. And God graciously canceled our debt and gave us mercy, and he also gave us grace. And so God's whole thing is, since I've forgiven you in this way, since you have an unbroken relationship with me, you have the promise of being with me for all eternity, and all of your sins are canceled against you, you need to forgive other people. It's a tiny little echo of what I've done for you. Um, it's a little drop in the bucket of what I've done for you. You need to pass this along. And um, I think that when, when we forgive others, we extend the forgiveness that God gave to us to somebody else. We extend what God's given us to somebody else. I, re- I recognize forgiveness is very challenging because of the many horrible things people do to one another. Um, the challenge is to work through it. God has compassion. The desire is to get to a place where you forgive to get into a process of forgiveness where you are working towards this place where you are not holding someone's sins against them. Again, it doesn't mean that you trust them. It means that you forgive them, you release them. So the bitterness and anger do not rule in your heart because bitterness and anger are the entryways of your life to destruction, to darkness. It's for your own good. They say that uh, bitterness and unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die from it. You know, it kills you. And I think that counselors and psychologists and these people. You know, these are things that are common and people have to work through these things in therapy because it's a way that God's made us. But here, God gives us dimension, um, this the really hard, hard dimension where it says, if you forgive other people, your God will forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, God will not forgive your sins. There's a way in which you know that you fully receive forgiveness and grace from God if you are ready to give that to other people. And so there's... There's something there. If there's unforgiveness in your heart, it's something to go after because it is, it seems to be a matter of uh, your own salvation, your own relationship with God to be going after that. And in our church, we go through a, in our small groups and, and in general, we'll have other opportunities to go through material called soul care material that leads you through forgiveness and, and moving on from these things. There is hope, and there is a process to go through to get to a place of freedom here. But as Jesus says, you know, if you, how can you say it any more succinctly? If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. You can't get away from that verse. It's a really, it's a really strong words. You know, the, it comes back to the greatest commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Forgiveness is kind of the base of, of loving neighbor, so it's a way to to love your neighbor, even, so, even love your enemy. For, forgiveness is how you get there. So those who, if you're going to really genuinely love other people, that entails also forgiving people who have sinned against you. Burdens and debts. Forgiveness. Finally, we're in uh, Matthew 6, 13. It says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is a, a curious little, little saying because in James 1.13, it says, God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. So if you're reading this prayer and you're saying, asking God not to tempt you, lead, don't lead me into temptation, God, like you usually do. But, you know, delivering from evil. No, that can't be right, because James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anybody. Temptation here 
means, I believe, test means um, deliver from, deliver me out of, and preserve me through a test of my faith, a situation in my life. It's asking God to protect you and rescue you from a time of testing. There is all kinds of uh, ways that people are tempted, whether from their own flesh and their own evil desires which give birth to sin, or by demonic influence and the power of evil in the world. There's lots of ways people are tempted. This is saying, as I'm being tested, as I'm being sifted, um, deliver me. Lead, Lead me out of the way of this and deliver me from the evil one. And perhaps that phrase, deliver me from the evil one, gives a little nod as to where this temptation is coming from. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, this is a great promise, but it's it's almost infuriating too because you feel like, wow, um, I need to find it. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. So Satan tempts you. Your flesh tempts you. Um, God is sovereign. He's not tempting you, but he also will not, he'll restrain evil so you are not ever tempted beyond what you can bear. That's a really positive thing. And then secondly, he offers you a way out, a creative way out of that temptation. It's a provision from God. So it's saying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 2 Timothy 4.18 says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a great doxology um, to put at the end of a prayer. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. What a confidence. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So this prayer, I believe it's something that we could pray the form of. We could put our own words into it. But I'm going to suggest a countercultural thing that we can do as Christians is to actually pray this very prayer every day and to see how it teaches you to trust in God and follow him more closely. It's, uh, it's something the church has always done up until very recently. People have prayed this several times a day. It doesn't mean you can't pray spontaneous prayers. It's saying that this is part of what you do. Um, They've prayed it in churches for generations. I think that when Jesus' disciples asked him in Luke 11, teach us how to pray, he wasn't just playing with them. He was giving them a real prayer that's really powerful, that's a real teacher. And he says, whenever you pray, pray this. So I think we should all all be praying this prayer on a more regular basis. And I think that we could add add to that practice uh, Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 39. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think if we prayed Matthew 22, 37 to 39, and Matthew 6, 5, or I'm sorry, Matthew 6, 9 to 13, every day, at least once, maybe multiple times a day, it would begin to really cultivate something special in us, a place where God can work. And I think that is one of, the, one of those practices that is, um, because, of, because some people come from a tradition that they felt was very dead, and then they come to a church and they're like, finally, I'm alive in Christ. We're not doing reciting prayers anymore and all this kind of like 
um, ceremonial stuff. I'm really connected to God. I think, I think when, you've, when you've grown from, from that faith into the spontaneous relationship with God, it's time to go back and see what you're missing by praying this very prayer and asking God to use it to teach you. Jesus said, whenever you pray, pray it. I also think that some of the anxiety we have surrounding prayer that keeps us from doing it has to do with not having that mooring, not having that, that anchor that we can tie our boat off to and know that we're just we're floating in a good place. So I think we can, we can start with the Lord's Prayer. We can start with the greatest commandment. And from that time, you're going to come away with spontaneous praying. You're going to be praying for other people's needs, thinking about how you're praying our Father, thinking about the other people in the body of Christ. Uh, you're going to start meditating and praying through this passage and hearing from God in a new way. So I'm challenging the church to, to take this, this prayer, to take the great commandment, and make that a part of your life. Whether you put a reminder on your cell phone to ding at a certain time, and you just pray this prayer and see how Jesus uses it to teach you. Um, knowing that God who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That God loves to give good gifts to his children. That he hears us when we call out to him. That before we even utter anything, he knows fully what we need before we ask him. Now this is the God we're praying to. Heavenly Father, I pray for your church. I pray for, I pray for us, Lord, that we would learn to pray in the school of Jesus, that we would pray this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to say, to pray, and see how you use it to teach us, to mold us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.